Welcome to Fertility and Sterility on Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS on Air is brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility family of journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and is hosted by Dr. Kurt Barnhart, Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Micah Hill, Media Editor, Dr. Eve Feinberg, Editorial Editor, and Dr. Michael Simone, Interactive Associate and Producer. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Fertility and Sterility on Air, Season 2, Episode 7. As usual, I'm joined by my co-hosts, Dr. Eve Feinberg and Dr. Kurt Barnhart. Kurt and Eve, how are you? Wonderful. Glad to be on the podcast with you. Yep, same here. Really glad to be back. As you all know, we're discussing the April issue of Fertility and Sterility, which is Volume 117, Issue 4. On today's podcast, we have a bunch of very interesting articles to discuss with all of you. We're going to start off with the Fertile Battle section. Eve, why don't you tell us a little bit about the Fertile Battle this month? Thanks, Pietro. This one is really timely. The title of the Fertile Battle is, Is Telehealth a Valuable Resource in Reproductive Endocrinology and Infertility? The COVID-19 pandemic led to a 2,000% increase in telemedicine visits by April of 2020. It was a forced experiment in telehealth, and now as we're hopefully emerging from the COVID-19 pandemic, we're definitely at a crossroad of whether to continue telehealth and in what capacity. This month's Fertile Battle has a pro side and a con side. The pro side of the piece was written by Press Perry, Serena Chen, and Lowell Koo. And they make the following arguments. They say that telehealth maximizes access to care, improves efficiency, and improves satisfaction for both patients and providers. They also cite that the increased patient satisfaction is especially true in times of physician delay. For example, it is easier for the patient to be productive and complete other tasks when they're not sitting inside the physician waiting room. Traveling to visits is the second largest temporal burden in procreative care and a significant predictor of patient stress, and telehealth really mitigates that. You could also argue that decreased commute time for physicians gives more work-life flexibility and may decrease the cost of running multiple satellite offices. Reducing the time required for a consult to that of a work break for patients increases access for the economically vulnerable. And they also state that telehealth increases engagement for both partners, especially in couples with a male partner who is not physically needed to be present for most visits. Telehealth also increases MD productivity, allows for more patients to be seen, and could potentially increase revenue for practices by having increased volume. In addition to telehealth, technology adjuncts like wearables, like home ultrasound monitoring, may further help to keep patients out of the office moving forward beyond the COVID-19 pandemic. The con side of this fertile battle was written by Kelsey Anderson, Sarah Keller, and Kenan Omertag. They note that the increasing use of telehealth was inevitable. The pandemic just accelerated implementation. They favor the implementation, but they caution that this may be the nail in the coffin of the traditional physician-centered approach to healthcare delivery. The most obvious risk to sustaining telehealth is economic. The federal government has input on reimbursement for telehealth services, but 
individual states may actually dictate practice patterns and what services get reimbursed. Currently, physician licensing is by state, and this leads to complexities in billing when patient and physician are in different states. They also discuss the erosion of care. Conversations that we have are difficult in person, and these can sometimes be even more challenging electronically. Furthermore, dyssynchronous care with decreased physician oversight can lead to patient dissatisfaction and medical error. They argue that patient-centered healthcare threatens the traditional physician-centered approach, and this leads to physician burnout. The increasing demand on automation, EMR usage, data entry, and artificial intelligence to make monitoring decisions, embryology decisions, et cetera, stand to refocus the role of the REI physician, which some may find undesirable. Personally, I think the genie is out of the bottle. Medicine has forever changed as a result of the pandemic, but I think that some of the challenges have catalyzed needed improvements in the way that we deliver care. For sure, virtual visits are here to stay, but we need to find equilibrium between efficiency and safety. Pietro, Kurt, what do you think? I personally have loved telehealth because I think as a young working parent, it has really allowed me to participate and pick up and drop off. So I've really loved it from that perspective. But I got to tell you, and I think everyone will agree, there's something about talking to a screen that's much more exhausting than talking to a person. I find myself doing the same volume of work on the screen is just so much more exhausting than in-person work. I think patients love it. The fact that they can do this on their break and, and three-way their, their partner is fantastic. I just don't think it should be exclusive. There's times and places where you really should see people in person and you really can have a better um, ability to communicate. All my office hours are now hybrid. I have half of them for in-person visits and half of them for telehealth visits. I just hope the government decides that they'll pay us for this because ultimately it's it's never what's best for the patients. It's always who gets paid. Yeah, I think that's really well said. And I agree. We've been primarily doing our visits via telehealth, but on request by patients, we have had in-person visits. And I think that that hybrid approach is probably the best way to go. Let's keep moving with you. In this month's inkling, we actually have a special contribution from Dr. Marcel Cedars, the president of the ASRM, entitled, Is It Time to Revisit Rotterdam? Yeah, I hope you all pay attention to this. It's, it's lovely that we can get um, such visible experts to give their opinion. And Dr. Cedars um, gives a nice piece pontificating a little bit on whether it's time to revisit, as you mentioned, the Rotterdam criterion. But really, it's not about the Rotterdam criteria. It's more about like our classification systems actually helping us or hurting us. You know, the Rotterdam criteria for PCOS has gone under bit, quite a bit of scrutiny and debate compared to the so-called NIH criteria. And some people would say, look, the Rotterdam criteria is so loose that as many as 20% of people might be considered PCOS. And is that really an indication of their health status? Is that really helping us? And it also has implications on research because it makes it really difficult to compare studies for us to make aggregate decisions and meta-analyses. And the same could be said for um, ovarian reserve classifications such as the Poseidon criteria. So this is an interesting piece on that while we like to categorize and get useful definitions, that there are consequences when the definition is not clinically and research meaningful. That was not exactly eloquently said. Uh, so sometimes a consensus on a definition for something that is difficult to define is actually not helping us. 
So we all, like in life and in medicine, we like to compartmentalize. It makes it easier to go about our daily task without thinking. But Dr. Cedars is suggesting that maybe we actually do have to think some more. I think that was really well said. And I think that part of the problem with the Rotterdam criteria is that it's really brought in the diagnosis of PCOS to 15 to 20% of the population. And I really liked how she argues that if something is as prevalent as 15 to 20%, then is it really pathologic? And by going back to perhaps a more exclusive definition rather than a more inclusive definition, we may be able to better answer research questions that target specific therapies. So keep that in mind. It'll come up with the next paper that I talk about. <laughs> little, uh, little foreshadowing. Before we get there, I have this month's seminal contribution. This is an article that's actually received a ton of late press coverage, so I wouldn't be surprised if many of our listeners have already heard about it, but it's finally out in print this month. This article is called Chronic Exposure to Delta-9 THC Impacts Testicular Volume in Male Reproductive Health in Rhesus Macaques by Hedges et al. and the team at the OHSU Primate Research Center. Marijuana, as we know, is the most commonly used recreational drug in the U.S., but surprisingly little is still known on how chronic use may impact male fertility and reproductive potential. Most of the data that we do have is a retrospective from small cohorts, mostly from men already attending a fertility clinic. This study sought to prospectively and dynamically determine the dose-dependent effect of THC exposure on the male testes in non-human primates. So what did they do? They took six adult rhesus macaques between eight to 10 years of age with previously proven fertility and gave them daily edible THC cookies at medically and recreationally relevant doses. These doses were slowly titrated up with the dose increase about every 70 days, the life cycle of sperm production over a period of seven months or three spermatogenesis cycles. After ingesting the THC cookies, these poor monkeys unfortunately had a bunch of things done to them. They had blood drawn for THC levels. They underwent electro ejaculation for semen collection. They had scrotal ultrasounds and they had serum hormones that were evaluated. What did they find? Well, first, as kind of, I think, a fun point of interest, they found that the monkeys' weights remained unchanged throughout the seven months of the study, despite these increasing amount of THC cookies. And there were no behavioral changes that were noted by the staff that were caring for them. I like how you, you get that in a results section. That's something you don't see very often. But down to like the hard outcomes. So on scroll ultrasound, they saw that with increasing THC doses, there was a marked decrease in testicular volume. So much so that the testes volume decreased by about 58% over seven months. Dramatic. With regard to reproductive endocrine axis, both FSH and LH increased significantly with increasing THC doses, where estradiol and total testosterone dropped with each increasing dose. Lastly, and I think probably most pertinent to our patients, assuming we're taking care of rhesus macaques, the semen parameters showed no appreciable differences in any aspect of the semen analysis with increasing THC dose. Now, to me, this is a really nicely done primate study, and I'm glad it was done, but I think it actually received a lot of negative press coverage. Kurt, as editor of the journal and kind of shepherd of this paper into the journal, how did you respond to this criticism, and how do you see this as a contribution to the literature? 
No, I think it's a tremendous contribution to literature because it's because it, it just it teaches us more in an objective scientific way. Now, admittedly, it's the brunt of many jokes and more people were interested in well, how did you make the THC cookie and things like that. But this is giving us hard evidence and it should be published. Yeah, there was nothing about the the consumption of Funyuns or late night pizza that was included in the results section, which I felt was a missed opportunity. But I agree with you. I think this is the kind of study that needs to get done. And primates, I think, are a great way to do this in a nice, controlled fashion where we can collect this huge amount of data on these macaques. I mean, joking aside, but there are some behavioral changes that increase appetite that may go along with chronic marijuana use that you may see in humans and you may see more of an obesity component than you do in racist monkeys. Um, but nevertheless, I really commend the authors. I think this is fantastic work and really a good, really a good study. So I'm glad it was published. Yeah, by publishing this, we're certainly not saying it's directly correlative from non-human primates to men. But again, this is objective evidence and it should see the light of day. Glad it got good publicity. I'm glad we had some good jokes about it. Eve, let's continue with you on something slightly more serious. We have three articles in the ASRM pages section of this month's journal. The first piece is from the ASRM Center for Policy and Leadership, and it is Lessons Learned After Two Years of the Ongoing Pandemic. And this was written by a small writing group as part of the larger COVID-19 task force. The small writing group consisted of me, Jennifer Kwas, Sigal Klepstein, Alan Penzias, Peter Schlegel, and Katherine Rakowski. This was both a reflection on the past two years, as well as a gathering of our thoughts of how to best prepare for the next pandemic, because surely there will be one. We discuss how to assemble your team, that science and data should be priorities, that reproduction is a fundamental human right that merits protection at all times, and that advocacy for access to care, research funding, and inclusion in research are all critical. We conclude by saying that effective pandemic management requires a joint effort on the part of physicians, scientists, government agencies, subject area experts, and funders. Advanced preparation in anticipation of the next global health crisis is important so that future response can be immediate. The second piece in the ASRM pages is from the Ethics Committee entitled Provision of Fertility Services for Women at Increased Risk of Complications During Fertility Treatment or Pregnancy. This piece addresses the ethics of providing fertility treatment to women who are at increased risk of complications from either fertility treatment or from pregnancy itself. All patients who present for fertility services need to be assessed for their risk of medical complications during both treatment and pregnancy. The piece talks a lot about reproductive liberty, and I think it's important to share the definition. Reproductive liberty includes the right of individuals to make informed choices about whether and how to reproduce. It also means the right to receive fertility care in a non-discriminatory manner. The document discusses the obligation to encourage risk reduction for modifiable risk factors. The major take-home point of this document is that clinicians ethically can decide to provide care when decisions arise from evidence-based reasonable judgments about risk of morbidity and mortality. And when these recommendations are made, they should be in conjunction with the specialists who have expertise in the woman's particular medical condition. 
in situations where a physician either agrees to provide care or declines to provide care to a high-risk patient, a second opinion should be obtained. Furthermore, clinicians must make efforts to ensure that patients' decisions are voluntary and that they're not being pressured by external circumstances. The next document is the use of reproductive technology for sex selection for non-medical reasons, an ethics committee opinion. This is written as a very neutral piece that outlines the arguments both for and against sex selection for medical indications. However, the arguments for medical sex selection are three points, and the arguments against sex selection are about 12 points. The arguments for non-medical sex selection include reproductive liberty, having access to technologies that enable individuals to shape the course of pregnancy and child rearing experience supports that principle. The authors cite that the preference for one sex may not necessarily reflect discriminatory attitudes or intent or gender bias, especially in cases of family balancing, and that the preference that one family may have for one sex over the other is not necessarily inconsistent with unconditional love. The arguments against sex selection are a lot longer. They state that the long-term medical risks of some procedures to offspring are unknown, and that it's unjustifiable to incur risk for something not necessary. And as we have highlighted multiple papers over the course of this podcast, looking at long-term ART risks, I do think that this needs to be taken into consideration. The arguments against also are that ART in and of itself incurs unnecessary medical risk to the mother. There may be the risk of coercion by a partner, partner family, or societal pressure. They cite that technology is imperfect and diagnostic error can occur. Critics state that PGTA for sex selection fails to show appropriate respect for embryos. And critics also warn of this as a slippery slope towards selection of other traits. Sex selection may impose inappropriate gender norms because sex does not always equal gender, as we all know. And finally, the document discussed social justice concerns. This may result in significant gender imbalances in society and concerns about social stability. And there are countries such as Canada where sex selection is frankly prohibited. The potential impact of sex selection on gender equality is a point worthy of consideration. And this may propagate continued gender oppression, especially in some countries outside of the U.S. And finally, if resources are limited, then it must be ensured that the provision of ART for sex selection would not impair access to care for couples who have infertility. The committee concludes by stating that because the practice remains ethically controversial, clinics are encouraged to draft and make available written policies setting forth whether and under what circumstances non-medical sex selection will be available. I thought this was a really good document, and I do agree that every clinic should have a written practice that's readily available, and then consistency among the physicians within that practice so that everybody's on the same page when and how and if, um, when these decisions arise. Eve, did the document go into the decision of an individual practitioner? In other words, um, we have this debate all the time. If someone asks me to to perform that procedure and I don't want to, is that a right or is it something that can be declined? Yeah, so it, it doesn't go into that, but I will say that I think that as a practice and we we faced this in my former practice where there were physicians in the practice that would 
readily do sex selection and physicians in the practice that readily didn't. And those who were uncomfortable um, with sex selection and full disclosure, I'm totally uncomfortable with it, would just simply refer those cases to the physicians in the practice that, that readily did sex selection. In my current practice, we are all on the same page and our clinic policy is that we don't do ART for non-medical indications. So if somebody has a medical indication for ART, then we further break that down into saying that our lab prefers to, to pick the best embryo based on morphologic criteria in situations where PGT was done. And so if we have two embryos that are both day five, one, one graded embryos, then at that point we will offer the patient the opportunity to choose, but we're very transparent about how and when we allow decisions to be made based on the sex of the embryo. And I think it's incredibly helpful to have a practice of people that are all on the same page or at least to be consistently inconsistent. And if you, as a clinic, offer sex selection, then I do think as an individual in that clinic, you're obligated to refer to one of the partners uh, or faculty members who do. We've come a long way from making jokes about monkeys and cannabis, but um, I think this is deadly serious. I think each physician should read this document and find out where they stand on this, because this should be something you think about proactively, not reacting to the patient that's, that's sitting in front of you and hopefully not reacting differently to different patients. Yeah, and I think that it, it bears discussion as a group. Um, and I, I do think written policy that needs to be made available, especially for that new patient that may be calling in to schedule, I want to have, I want to have X sex or X gender, as they usually say, um, for your scheduling team to be really upfront with that patient and say, hey, we don't offer IVF for non-medical indications, but our partners down the street do. So you may be best served making an appointment with that practice and really blocking that appointment from the get-go so that you're not wasting the patient's time and you're not putting the physician in an uncomfortable situation. I, I, have been in a couple very uncomfortable situations where couples have wanted sex selection and the rationale behind it, I, I later came to learn was quite sordid and it really made me see it very differently and kind of under the understanding that you never really know what goes on in your patient's homes and best to just stick to medicine and not, um, not deviate from that. I like that line. We're here to practice reproductive medicine. We're not selling products. So um, anyway, you, you now know my bias. Here, we're going to keep it going with you with the artificial intelligence section. I feel like unfortunately you've become our, or fortunately for the listeners, you've become our go-to for artificial intelligence papers. Why don't you tell us a little bit about this month's paper? Thank you, Pietro. Yes, we have another machine learning paper published in this month's Journal of FNS. The title of this article is Machine Learning for Euploid Prediction in Human Embryos in Search of the Best Performing Model and Projecting Features. Um, this is presented by Stephanie DeGlasse. I hope I didn't totally butcher that name, and Kelly Teilman out of a group in Belgium. So as you've listened to in previous podcasts, you'll understand that machine learning involves 
a computer algorithm to look at as much data as possible to predict a particular outcome. And there are a number of computer algorithms out there that one can choose from with some very fancy names like Random Forest Classifier, Skype Learning Classifier, Support Vector Machine, Multivariate Logistic Regression, and even something called Naive Bayes Analyses. Basically, all of these mathematical predictions look at patterns to see if they can find a way to predict an outcome. The set of predictors uh, then needs to be validated to see if it works in either what's called a split or an independent sample. So the goal of this study was to find a non-invasive and accurate way to predict the best embryo. Well, in particular, in this case, they were predicting whether the embryo was euploid or not. So in brief, they looked at 128 couples. Look, the, the dates were 2016 to 2019, so fairly contemporary. And it, they looked at a total of 539 embryos. It was 45% euploid and 55% aneuploid was the population. They then looked at actually each embryo as the outcome, not the patient. So they were actually looking to, to predict a single embryo on whether it was euploid or aneuploid. So the purpose of this study was to look at five different machine learning models with a number of databases. And what's interesting about this one is it wasn't just looking at morphometric characteristics of the embryo, but it also included developmental factors of the embryo time-lapse parameters and patient demographics and clinical characteristics. So to be a little more specific, the oocytes were cultured in time-lapse incubator systems, the Embryoscope, the Embryoscope Plus, or Vitrolife. So there's a number of um, uh, parameters that, that could be fed into the computer about um, changes and dynamic pictures at certain times. Uh, this was all taken care of by software from Vitrolife, and in the sense of telling you where this all came from. And they had 16 time points that were analyzed, and, and they added that to 85 features were extracted from the medical record, which makes this relatively unique. So as I mentioned, um, you have to validate this. So what they did was a standard uh, split the sample. So 80% of the sample was used to derive the, the models, and then 25, I'm sorry, 20% was used to then test it. Now, I can get technical or I can stay very high level here. Um, there are a number of definitions that if you do perform um, artificial intelligence, you should know. So, and it gets very complex and I won't give a whole tutorial here, but you, know, you can look at things called accuracy or precision or recall sensitivity as they did in this paper, something called an F1 score. But really you have to pick one and, and decide that's going to be your measure. So I like accuracy, the proportions of correctly predicted observations to the total number of observations made. It's better than sensitivity because you're not just looking at positives. It's better than specificity because you're not only looking at negatives. I think accuracy is where you really want. Is the prediction accurate or not? So this model is giving answers that give the accuracy in the range of around 71 to 75%. The authors will quibble with me and they'll say that some of the measurements were in the 80s, but, but the point is it's similar to um, other methods, which is really only, we can only accurately predict somewhere in the range of 70 to 80%. This is not 100%. So then the next important thing is, well, not only did they pick the mathematical model that they thought was the best, which is interesting in itself. Then they looked at something called feature selection, and they said, what are the features that are actually gearing to this pred prediction? There's a table in there that I can't do justice to verbally, but it lists all the different features and their relative importance. 
there's 41 features that ended up in the model. Now, but of those features, four of them were clinical. Number actually five, nine, and 19. And those features were sperm concentration, age, sperm motility, and believe it or not, gonadotropin dose was on the list itself. So this begs the question that we should we be looking at more than just the embryo to be able to know whether it's euploid or aneuploid and do other factors like sperm or age actually have some independent predictive ability. The problem is it's difficult to disentangle this. Like, how do you disentangle the age of the embryo? Because all the embryos made in a certain cycle are obviously the same age. And even you really can't look at the sperm as specifically as you want, because although morphology might be important, you don't know which sperm actually fertilized which embryo. So, so it's really hard to pull these out. And whether we're just predicting the chance of aneuploidy or whether they have a model that's actually picking from a pool of embryos, which is most likely to be aneuploid. So that's probably the biggest limitation of this paper. Again, you should read the paper. It's, it's, an ama it's amazing science and what AI can do. I don't think any of us on this podcast or at home would disagree that if we can find an accurate, non-invasive way to predict an embryo, it, that's, that's an innovation. That's what we do every day is just predict. But this paper is more a kind of an exercise in like, what's the, what are we trying to predict? Is our goal prediction of an embryo? Is it aneuploid or not? Or is our goal to predict this is the embryo to transfer? So we're going to have many more of these papers come through fertility and serility. You're, you are at the nascent of a new methodology coming through. So um, please learn a little bit more about AI. Uh, this is a good paper in that it teaches you, if you read it, about how models are made and, and what goes into the prediction. But unfortunately, spoiler alert, I'm not going to have an answer for you, and this model is not going to be implemented in your laboratory tomorrow. What did you guys think? So, Kurt, I think that was a great overview. And for our listeners, last month's episode also had a really wonderful explanation. Kurt, I thought you did a great job last month of diving in and talking about some of the specifics about AI. So I think the gold standard or the holy grail of AI is really going to be as a replacement for PGT. Can you look at a cohort of embryos? Can you look at the morphokinetics? Can you look at that in combination with clinical characteristics? And without disturbing an embryo by doing a biopsy, can we select the single best embryo? And I think that is what everyone is trying to do with AI. This paper showed that it could not be done, um, at least on this set. And I think one other learning point about AI is you start with a data set, split it into two sets, and then you also need to get an external validation of your model. So that's really the next step with this particular data set. And whether you split it 80-20 or 70-30, I think is pretty, um, I don't think it really matters by paper, but it's, I think most of the papers are in that range. And then taking another data set and applying it and seeing how predictive uh, an individual model is will ultimately increase the accuracy of the prediction. But this paper is not there. And I think the take-home point from this paper is that on a single embryo level, you can be between 70 and 75% certain that the embryo is euploid. Whereas with PGT, while it's not 100% certain, you're 96 to 99% certain. And so my take-home point from looking at this is that it's somewhat more predictive. It's not totally predictive. We're not ready for this prediction to be implemented. And 
I'm not certain that it's more predictive than age alone. Like the fact that age is so entangled in this, you can predict what proportion of embryos are going to be euploid fairly consistently based on age alone. And so I think more work needs to be done in this arena. And I do think that this was a really nice design along with the paper from last month looking at those predictors. I think we'll get there eventually. We're just not there yet. Yeah, I, I want to say that again, because you're, you're right. It, there's two thoughts that come to mind. We are really at the basic here of using artificial intelligence, Art, using it, period, because people are using it in business and everywhere else and making, you know, coming with the same pitfalls and making mistakes, but even earlier to use it in, a, in, in ART. I think, you know, as a general rule, the computer probably is better than the human mind because it could take more information in and be more objective. But it also begs the second thought that came to my mind is, are we sure that you can actually predict which is the best embryo? I mean, is that is that a, a, a possible? I mean, is that a question that can be answered? You'd have to transfer every embryo. The stuff that never gets transferred, you'll never really know its reproductive potential. So I think there's an inherent limitation there that we'll never know what happens to embryos that we've evaluated, scored, analyzed, but that we don't transfer. It also ignores the uterus. It's basically saying that the embryo is what determines whether or not it will implant. And we all know that the embryo is a huge portion of that, but the uterine environment, I argue, still has something to do with implantation. Yeah, I'm not trying to say that pregnancy is an unpredictable event. What, what I'm trying to say is we might not be, we might not have the right predictive variables, or we might not be able to predict it beyond like a certain percentage. So these are exercises that in um, diminishing returns, if you will. But there's still a lot of science that we don't understand about implantation and embryo growth. Yeah, and I think to your point, you may not be able to predict euploidy or aneuploidy based on what we see. Like it may be something that the visual markers just simply don't predict it and you need cells or you need metabolomics or you need spent media. We may be barking up the wrong tree by looking solely at morphokinetics. Or isn't it better to look very very um, rigorously at morphokinetics? So therefore, we don't have to biopsy an embryo. So this is this is why you're going to you're going to be hearing this again and again in in FNS. Absolutely, but if they can't figure it out, it may be that that morphokinetics morphokinetics is not the answer. I think we're saying the same thing. So moving away from artificial intelligence and back to prospective randomized trials, um, this month's fertility and sterility has a really nice one on an intervention for patients with DOR. DOR seems to be an increasingly more common diagnosis as the age of uh, women accessing IVF has creeped up over the last decade. In the United States, the prevalence of DOR has increased three times in the last 10 years from published data using SART 12% in 2005, up to 31% in 2016. So we know as this diagnosis becomes more common, we can also expect to see lower success rates when women use autologous oocytes. In 2013, however, there was a technique called IVA or in vitro activation that was described as a potential intervention for women with DOR. IVA requires the ovary to be mechanically and chemically fragmented so as to activate a pool of dormant follicles via interruption of intracellular HIPPO signaling. And the thought is, if you disrupt HIPPO signaling, you can increase cell proliferation and decrease apoptosis, thus resulting in activation of primordial follicles. 
This traditional approach to IVA described in 2013 requires both mechanical manipulation of ovarian tissue, as well as incubation with things like P10 inhibitors and AKT stimulating molecules, both of which are known to be carcinogenic. A chemical-free approach to IVA has been studied and reported on over the last several years, but there's never really been a test of this intervention in a prospective fashion. And in this month's FNS, Cesar Diaz-Garcia and his colleagues in Spain report on the results of an RCT for follicular activation in DOR patients. The authors from Valencia recruited 34 women under the age of 39 with an ESHRA criteria diagnosis of DOR, and they randomized these women one-to-one to in vitro activation versus no intervention. IAVA here in this study consisted of laparoscopy with ovarian cortical biopsy with cold scissors to only one of the ovaries. The tissue from that ovarian cortex was then removed, mechanically fragmented in the OR by a skilled technician, and then reintroduced into a pocket made between the cortex and the medulla of that ovary. Anywhere from 30 to 100 fragments were reintroduced. Again, this innovation here was there was no exposure to the P10 inhibitors or the AKT stimulating molecules. After the procedure, or no intervention, depending on what the patients were randomized, all patients underwent IVF. The primary outcome of this study was the number of metaphase II oocytes retrieved during the subsequent IVF cycle, as well as a host of secondary outcomes, including degree of inhibition of the hippopathway via protein and gene expression studies. So what did they find? First, it appears that randomization worked. In the small cohort of women, age, BMI, duration of infertility, as well as baseline AFC were similar. Right off the bat, they found that the AFC in the ovary that received these activated tissues was significantly higher than the baseline AFC. But this was really a difference of an AFC of one versus an AFC of three after the intervention. Given this low baseline reserve, this really didn't translate into a notable difference in AMH values, but that's not unexpected. However, the group that was randomized to the no intervention showed exactly what you would expect. There was no change in their AFC and also no change in their AMH. Unfortunately, this difference in AFC didn't translate into a difference in number of M2O sites, their primary outcome. Furthermore, there was no differences in fertilization rates, implantation rates, clinical pregnancy, or live birth. The authors do mention that there were a total of five live births recorded from the 34 patients who participated in the study four of them coming in the control group and one from the IVA group. Interestingly, the, they did find that there was some biologic plausibility for this intervention. Both the gene and the protein expression studies show that you could suppress the hippo pathway in the ovary via this mechanical fragmentation and reintroduction of tissue into the ovary. Ben Harris and Suhail Moasher from Duke have an accompanying inkling to this article that I think really puts this RCT into a helpful context for us. They mentioned that this technique of IVA involves not only a complex laparoscopic procedure with a high degree of surgical expertise, this is tricky stuff to do if you've never done it before, but it also requires skilled personnel that are going to be implementing this mechanical um, stimulation of the tissue before reintroduction. And finally, it's an intervention that requires financial costs, risk of surgical complications, so I think if we take a step back and look at the study, um, it doesn't appear that IVA has a role in improving the outcomes of patients with DOR, but there is some biologic plausibility for this technique. And it may be that we're doing this the wrong way or not doing it sufficiently, and we may ultimately end up seeing an improvement in the outcomes of patients with the DOR by 
suppressing the hippo pathway. But I think this study nicely tells us if you do it this way, it doesn't appear to be a benefit for these patients. Yeah, and I love the fact that they had a control group that had pregnancies because I think so often these studies are uncontrolled and then they have a couple of pregnancies afterwards and they toot their own horn saying, look, it worked. Our patients conceived and got pregnant. We know that a certain percentage of patients who have DOR or even ovarian failure will ultimately conceive. But to date, but to date, no treatment has been shown to be more beneficial than just expectant management in this population. I'm pleased that a negative study gets into fertility and sterility. I think that was by design, and I'd, I'd like to see those because it was, again, well-designed, well-conceived, no pun intended. Um, they had a primary outcome, they stuck to it, and they reported on it. I don't want this to be construed, I'm not picking on your PHO, but like naysayers are going to say, ah, but it was just done the wrong way. If only we had, you know, followed the biological plausibility and then you keep doing it again and again and again because you just can't convince people that are true believers. So um, I'm glad, again, negative science gets published because it hopefully should inform our decision-making and our care. We're going to continue with you on an article that looks at placental pathology from ART-conceived infants from a group that I'm pretty familiar with and one of my senior residents and now uh, attendings, Caitlin Sacco. Great. So this is, um, as you mentioned, placental pathology of term singleton live births conceived with fresh embryo transfer compared with those conceived without assisted reproductive technologies by Dr. Saka and co-authors at Mass General Hospital. The title pretty much says it all, term placenta for singleton live births that were conceived with and without ART were evaluated for the incidence of anatomic, inflammatory, or vascular placental pathology. The high-level finding was that the fresh embryo transfer is associated with increased anatomic and vascular placental pathology, and inflammation, depending how you read the paper, was either um, not associated or actually was inversely associated. So, to be more specific, there was a higher incidence of placental pathology in the exposed group, those conceived with ART, compared to the unexposed group. This is not a case control study. This is a cohort. Even though they're reporting odds ratios of around 2.5 for structural abnormalities and 2.0 for vascular abnormalities. Now, the interesting part in this paper is probably not what you think I was going to say. I think it's the, the argument about the trends that they found that the, that the association is stronger in those conceived with ICSI than those conceived without ICSI. So let's talk about that a little bit more. Again, the rationale is pretty clear here. Um, we've been learning a lot about the perinatal morbidity of children conceived with ART, and there's always been a focus on the placenta, and there's a, a large spectrum of outcomes that are perhaps associated with placentation, hypertensive disorders, growth restrictions, abruption, preterm labor. However, we really still don't know what placentation means and we really still don't understand the mechanism. So this is a study to try to elucidate this potential mechanism by looking at placental pathologies. Uh, they chose to do it on term pregnancies and they're, it's again relatively contemporary 2004 to 2017 for women that conceive with ARTS because they need to get the numbers up uh, and then you know, only 2000 to 2004 for the non-ART pregnancies. As mentioned, this is all one hospital where they're delivered. So the specific outcome of interest was the incidence of anatomical in inflammatory or vascular placental pathology using a criteria called the Amsterdam Placental Workshop Criteria. There were some interesting sub-analyses 
for example, a sensitivity analysis where they restricted the analysis only to those with single blastocyst transfer to remove the potential of confounding by vanishing twins, which has previously been linked with altered placental pathology. I actually didn't know that. So let's, let's find some of the detail. Remember, this is by design a study that's apples to apples. They're choosing term pregnancies in both groups. So the placental weight was actually not different between the two groups, although the incidence of anatomical pathology was high. This goes back to what I said in the beginning. I have trouble interpreting this. The abnormalities in placenta was in two-thirds of placentas with ART, but 40% in normal ones. So I, I have to be a little bit dubious of an outcome an abnormal outcome that's so highly prevalent in both groups. So I'm not, it's not a problem with the study. I'm just saying that it's just hard to interpret that maybe we don't have the right criteria, like we didn't have the right criteria for PCOS or the right, or the right criteria for DOR. Um, now, inflammation, which perhaps is a little bit more understandable, was noted to actually be lower in children conceived with ART than in children not conceived with ARTs. So Putting this um, through a relatively well-done statistical plan demonstrates that having uh, an anatomical disorder was higher in the ART group and the finding of inflammation was lower. Now, what does that mean? So let's talk a little bit more about the intriguing classification. The paper claims that the association was stronger in um, children conceived with Dixie than children conceived with standard ART. However, while the numeric value was slightly higher, the confidence intervals overlap, and there was no specific analysis between the two groups. So I apologize. That kind of claim should not have gotten through the editorial process. That's, that's a very common incorrect claim. Just because a, a strength of association is higher in one group than another doesn't mean that it's true that that intervention is causal or even associated in the pathway. Uh, this was pointed out in the reflection by Mohammed and Mona Abdullar. And they also point out that there's no mechanism why ICSI should be more strongly associated with placental pathology than ART in general. Now, the authors of the paper talk about possibly epigenetic changes. And, you know, the two most commonly blamed phenomenon in ART are abnormal placentation and epigenetic changes, because we really don't know what either of them mean. So let's go back and explore this a little bit more. Placental abnormalities are not a health outcome, no offense to the pathologists, but it's difficult to classify um, such a large number of abnormalities and if that means anything clinically. So the study wasn't designed to look at clinical outcome, but so let's look at them anyway. There was no difference in the gestational age in the two groups, and the mean birth weight was slightly lower in the children conceived with ART, but only 80 grams, so it's hard to argue that that's clinically significant. But there was also two very consistent findings in other papers, which is a higher C-section rate and also a higher rate of preeclampsia. However, I'm unaware that placental shape or size or vascularity is associated with preeclampsia. So again, we're trying to make one and one equal two, but we're just not, a, not there. So in summary, it's a nice study that, fur that furthers our understanding of the impact of ART on children, but we have a long way to really understand and perhaps minimize this association. So, Kurt, one point that I want to respectfully disagree on is that it may not distinguish those who are infertile from those who use ART. And I, I say this again and again, 
But the optimal control group is a control group or comparison group is a group of individuals who also have infertility who used non-ART measures to conceive. So IUI or took longer than a year to conceive and ultimately conceived without medical assistance. Comparing an ART group to a true non-infertility group to me doesn't separate out the risk that that infertility has as an independent risk factor for adverse outcomes. Um, The second point I want to make is even though all of these placentas were examined at the same hospital system, it doesn't necessarily mean that they were examined by the same placental pathologist. Um, They used a historical comparison group that was many years prior to this study period. And so I I think it's, it's also not as clean of a comparison as we'd like to see if it's done at one institution. So those are just my two, um, my two take-home points on potential flaws of this analysis as well. Pietro, what do you think? I think one thing you have to think about with these studies is which placentas get sent to pathology for evaluation at this institution. And having had the benefit of training here, I'll tell you that all the placentas at the Mass General get sent to pathology for evaluation. And then the full pathologic examination depends a little bit on the clinical criteria. I think this is an important point in their methods. If you have a history of ART and or age greater than 40, then a full gross and histologic examination of the placenta occurs. In the absence of that, there's really a very small limit of placentas that get fully evaluated. I think they specifically said it was a history of group B strep colonization, uh, which was the standard of care at the institution between 2000 and 2004. So you have to wonder, is there a little bit of confounding here by which placentas get evaluated and which ones don't? So this is a wonderful teaching point on the podcast. This is like a class you would teach to everyone else. So let's take advantage of it. when you look at a study, you're always going to find flaws. And you have to then, at the end of the day, after you find the strengths and the flaws, have to say, do I actually believe the results or not? And a study like this, you can go so far to say, yeah, it, it makes sense. They found differences. I think they're probably real. But I can only go so far in extrapolating that to what does it really mean to every patient or to this study. So all of the things we just pulled apart in this paper are true. I happen to believe that the findings are, are also true. I just want to caution that, um, you know, where we go with this. What I meant to say is we need to learn more about placentation. This study is, is the beginning, not the end. Well said. So well said. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to say so well said as always, Kurt. I think I, I really appreciate all your wisdom. Well, before the placenta even attaches, we have to have an appropriate endometrium, which is a great segue for EVR article that looks at optimal endometrial thickness in fresh and frozen IVF cycles. The objective of this study was to determine if there was an endometrial thickness at which live birth rates peaked or declined significantly in both autologous fresh IVF embryo transfer cycles and FET cycles. This was a retrospective study. It was performed between 2013 and 2019, and it was derived from the Canadian ART Registry Plus, which is Carter Plus. And for those of you unfamiliar with the Canadian ART Registry, 
It consists of 33 centers around Canada who voluntarily report outcomes, kind of like the U.S. SART. Canada's registry, however, is slightly different from that of the U.S. as birth outcomes are recorded and linked. And this study looked at just over 43,000 fresh transfers and 53,000 frozen embryo transfers. For fresh cycles, endometrial thickness was measured on the day of HCG trigger. And for FET cycles, it was measured prior to progesterone start. And then they further stratified for those patients who had linings less than eight millimeters. Patients were grouped into three groups, four to 5.9 uh, millimeters, six to 6.9, and seven to 7.9 millimeters. Fresh and frozen cycles included both cleavage stage and blastocyst transfers, and both day five and day six blastocyst transfers were lumped into one category. PGT in the beginning part of the study in 2013 accounted for 1% of all FET cycles, and then 15% of all FET cycles in 2019. They reported the outcomes, and they, they talked about these in two separate sections. So first, they reported the outcomes for fresh cycles, and then they reported the outcomes for frozen cycles. For fresh cycles, they found that thicker endometrium was associated with higher peak estradiol, more oocytes retrieved, and more embryos cryopreserved. They found that increasing thickness was associated with higher clinical pregnancy rates, lower loss rates, and higher live birth rates. In the thin endometrium group, those who had a lining of less than six millimeters had a 15.8% live birth rate. Those who had a lining of six to eight millimeters had a 22% live birth rate. And those who had a lining eight to 10 millimeters had a 28.1% live birth rate. And those with a lining of 10 to 12 millimeters had a live birth rate of 33%. Above a lining of 12 millimeters, live birth rate plateaued. When they analyzed these data by age, the same findings persisted. For example, in the age less than 35 group, there was a statistically significant improvement in live birth rates with increasing endometrial thickness. These data were also analyzed by the number of eggs retrieved to refute the point that thickness is simply a surrogate marker of ovarian response. And across every age group, and they had really nice graphs looking at both the age as well as by the number of eggs retrieved, showing that across every, every group, those who had fewer than four eggs, four to eight eggs, nine to 12 eggs, 13 plus eggs, live birth rates increased with increasing endometrial thickness. All of these data really are demonstrated beautifully in these figures that show linear association of success by endometrial thickness with both age and numbers of, numbers of eggs retrieved. Interestingly, the findings for frozen cycles were a little bit different. There was a significant difference in clinical pregnancy rates, live birth rates, and mean term singleton birth weights as the endometrium thickened. Those who had a lining of less than six millimeters also had a 15% live birth rate but this rose to 28% in those with a lining of seven. And there was no improvement in frozen cycles when the endometrial thickness improved above seven millimeters. I think at baseline, my reaction to this paper was, I just don't believe that. One of my mentors from Northwestern, the beloved Eddie Confino, always said, a good embryo will stick to drywall. <laughs> I'm not sure I believe that. The truth is probably somewhere in between, but I think that the study has some key limitations that are worth discussing. I feel obligated to highlight the very small numbers of included women at lower endometrial thicknesses. 
The number of patients with linings less than six millimeters in both fresh and frozen cycles was less than 1% of the total population studied, in part because I think that the natural tendency is to cancel these cycles. Second, my biggest issue with the study is there was really no comparison by embryo type. I certainly appreciate the stratification by age and by the number of eggs retrieved, but they're comparing apples to oranges or cleavage to blastocysts or even untested blasts to tested blastocysts. And in my perfect world, if I were to see a subgroup analysis, I'd like to see a subgroup analysis of euploid embryos or at minimum blastocysts and whether or not these findings persisted. With over 53,000 FET cycles included, I, I just don't understand why these data were not presented. Furthermore, equipment and measurements were not standardized across clinics, and we all know that there can be a fair degree of variation between individual measurements. In, again, in my version of a perfect study, there would be some sort of an adjudication or an independent investigator that reviews the images and either concurs with the measurements or uses calipers to remeasure. In addition, endometrial architecture was not measured or evaluated or reported on. And so the question is really, is aligning less than six millimeters okay if we have a trilaminar appearance to it? Endometrial preparation protocols for FETs were heterogeneous and all over the map in terms of what was done. And finally, the difference in findings between fresh and frozen in endometrial thickness lacks, in my opinion, biologic plausibility. Why would you have a worse outcome on a fresh cycle with a lining of seven millimeters than a frozen cycle with a lining of seven millimeters? So again, like I commend them on a huge study nationwide data that was done, but I would have liked to see this broken down into more of a fair comparison between groups. Kurt, you look pensive. <laughs> What do you, what do you, what's on your mind, Kurt? Well, it goes back to what I said before that, you know, you have to pick a paper apart and then decide whether you actually believe it. And in this case, it's clear that Eve doesn't believe it, um, which is, you know. Believe um, it somewhat. It, it's not that I don't believe it. I think it's just, it's really hard when the numbers of transferred patients in the less than six millimeter group are so incredibly low. They're less than 1% of the entire paper. So I have a hard time drawing conclusions and saying we should continue to cancel these patients because their outcomes are poor based solely on the data from these papers. Sure, like I think in somebody that has potential to have a better outcome, we may consider canceling, but it doesn't mean that we shouldn't ever transfer these patients. Yeah, and I want to be clear. I don't, I don't think Eve is saying, and I won't speak for her, that she doesn't believe the data that it's made up or, or that it's, it's it's in the wrong direction. It's just that there's there's enough limitations of the paper that you're really not sure the, the, the finding really is the truth. Um, we all present data that we think is true, and we do statistics on it like that. But still, there is data that is subject to bias in the way you collect it, um, many other things like uh, um lack of standardization where you can actually get a false finding. I don't mean intentionally false, just might not be true. I think unfortunately measuring the endometrium is just a really crude surrogate marker for what's going on in the endometrium. I think these studies have reinforced that the endometrium is probably a biomarker for something going on, but putting calipers from one end to one end is telling us so little about what's actually going on within those few millimeters. 
And we know what's happening is this really complex orchestrated set of events that is decidualization. You have inflammatory cells changing over, you have immune cells, you have stem cells that are all kind of carefully working together. And all we're telling here is seven millimeters, six millimeters, eight millimeters. To me in 2022, it just seems so crude that that's the best we still have to be able to assess endometrial thickness. I think the way forward here is probably having tissue, having metabolomic data, having proteome data of these endometrium and really sorting out the six millimeters means something different for this patient, whereas it means something totally different for the patient with eight millimeters. So I think that's the way forward, but those studies are really hard to do. And unfortunately, that information will never be captured in a, a SART course database, will never be captured in a Canadian data set. Um, but I think that's the data we need to hopefully clarify this question and stop the pendulum from swinging back and forth on an endometrial cutoff to preclude patients from having an embryo transferred. I hope we're not using it as a cutoff for who should have could transfer or not. Those obviously should be individuals. But it is a clear limitation of using administrative data that you sometimes can't get granular enough to really understand the biology. Yeah, I totally agree. And I will say that there are centers that simply will not transfer patients who have thin linings. And I receive a bunch of those patients as second opinions, recently transferred one. And I think we all have these anecdotes, but I recently transferred a patient with a lining of 4.5. Her other treating center simply wouldn't transfer her, told her she needed a GC. She had three U-point embryos secondary infertility. And they came to me and said, we're going to transfer. We're not using a carrier. Will you take us on as patients? And first embryo transfer on a natural cycle. She's pregnant. I think we all have those stories. And again, it's it's an anecdote, but I think it really shows that you can't, you can't have cutoffs and nothing is as binary as yes versus no. And that's not what this paper is saying. But I do think that when you do a large scale study, you really have to compare. Comparison groups should be similar and um, your control group, so to speak, should also be substantially different. The art versus the science of medicine. Well said. Continuing with the theme of large database studies, I have this next paper entitled Fresh Embryo Transfer Following In Vitro Insemination of Fresh Versus Cryopreserved Anonymous Donor Oocytes, a SART course study. So we're familiar with the conveniences of cryo using cryopreserved donor oocytes over fresh donor oocytes. More available, it's often more affordable, and certainly greater convenience for scheduling for patients and clinics. And I think it can't be understated that when using cryopreserved oocytes, we just have increased variety of ethnicities of oocytes for our patients to choose from. The authors of this study sought to understand if there were any reproductive benefits to using fresh over frozen oocytes and fresh ET cycles, despite all the benefits of using cryopreserved donor oocytes. To do this, the team from Iowa analyzed all anonymous donor oocyte recipient cycles that underwent fresh ET from 2014 to 2016 in the SARCORS database. The primary outcome was to determine if fresh transfer on day five derived Blah, blah, blah. Let me re-say that. The primary outcome was to determine if transfer of fresh embryos on day five derived from fresh anonymous donor oocytes yields a higher live birth rate compared with cryopreserved anonymous donor oocytes. So what did they find? From 2014 to 2016, they had 24,000 fresh embryo transfer cycles available for analysis. Two-thirds of them were fresh donor oocyte cycles. 
And this number, just in that time from 2014 to 2016, declined by around 12%, consistent with, I think, the national trends at the time and what we've continued to see since then. With regard to the primary outcome, and I think here is their big takeaway message, fresh oocytes yielded a significantly higher live birth rate per transfer than cryopreserved oocytes, 57% versus 49%. And this is consistent with other data that's recently been published, including from my friend Iris and Sonia in JAMA from last year. So why are reasons why this might be? Why are fresh donor oocytes better than frozen? So one possibility could be that fresh donor oocyte cycles just offer a greater number of oocytes to one inseminate, to select embryos from and kind of have the best morphologic embryo transferred. Another is the criteria for donors providing fresh oocytes may be more stringent than those who are providing cryopreserved donor sites, particularly at commercial donor banks. And finally, it's possible that the vitrification and thawing process are introducing either functional or morphologic changes in the oocyte, which may impair embryo growth or implantation potential. The data from this study did reveal that cycles using fresh oocytes were significantly more likely to produce good quality blastocysts, and this could be related to the quality of the oocyte that created it. There's one important point that I want to point out, and this is a, a nod to Micah Hill, who I think presented this at a podcast recently for us. The double embryo transfer rate in this cohort from 2014 to 2016 of donor oocytes was 53% for fresh and 50% for frozen. This is way too high. This is crazy, crazy high. And I think this is why we ended up with a multiple rate in this study of 26.4% in the fresh group and 20.6% in the frozen group. Eve, you see a lot of patients who are coming to you to use donor oocytes. How do you talk to your patients about fresh versus frozen oocytes? But beyond that, how many embryos to transfer when using donor egg? We transfer one. <laughs> There's really not a discussion about that. Our policy at our center is single embryo transfer for donor egg, period. Uh, and we really carefully counsel the patients on why we make that decision. We make that decision because pregnancy rates are not improved by transferring more than one embryo. Risks and complications of pregnancy are vastly increased by having twins. There are also some data that are out there showing that cumulative number of children born may actually be higher if you transfer single embryo by single embryo. So a family that wants two children may have a higher likelihood of ultimately having two kids if they transfer single embryo by single embryo. With regard to counseling on fresh donor bank versus frozen donor bank, I think it, or fresh oocyte donor versus frozen oocyte donor bank, I often start with ideal family size. How many children do you think you want to have? And for couples who want to have more than one child, I really encourage them to use a fresh oocyte donor simply because the number of oocytes retrieved are higher is higher and the number of cryopreserved embryos is higher. We also have seen data on, in prior studies that we've talked about on prior podcasts looking at the cumulative likelihood of success across fresh versus frozen. I think it was two months ago we looked at that really nice curve survival analysis that showed that the likelihood was ultimately the same if you had five embryo transfers. When you use a frozen donor egg bank, in the vast majority of situations, you get between one and three embryos. And I think in this study, they showed that 10% of patients only had one embryo 
that resulted from their donor egg bank. And so for couples who have an unusual race that's hard to find, a donor egg bank may be more favorable. For couples who already have a child who are just adding, looking to add one child to their family, I think that that makes a lot of sense to use a frozen egg bank. But really for the couple who wants to have more than one child, I strongly steer them towards a fresh oocyte donor. Moving on to our next article, the epidemiology section of this month's journal. We have an article from some old mentors and friends of mine, Dr. Leah Bernardi from Northwestern and Dr. Erica Marsh, now at University of Michigan, sought to evaluate the extent to which uterine fibroids are associated with AMH concentration in young African-American women. We know that despite the inverse association between ovarian reserve and age, AMH concentrations can vary widely among similarly aged women. One possibility for this variation that deserves further studies, the presence of uterine fibroids. It's not known exactly how ovarian reserve is impacted by the presence of fibroids, but we know that ovaries are at least partially perfused by branches of the uterine artery, which also provides blood supply to fibroids, making it therefore possible that fibroids could compromise blood flow to the ovaries. And if we impact blood flow, we may be impacting ovarian reserve and reducing AMH. To better evaluate if fibroids are associated with AMA concentrations, the authors analyze data from the SELF-study, which stands for Study of Environment, Lifestyle, and Fibroids. SELF is a large-scale, ongoing, prospective study of over 1,600 African-American women between the ages of 22 to 35 without a history of uterine fibroids, who had baseline ultrasounds and AMH levels checked during study enrollment between 2010 to 2012. The paramount outcome of this study was to report on the percent difference in mean AMH concentration between participants with fibroids and those without fibroids at study enrollment. The secondary outcomes were all the things you would also want to know. Was there a difference in AMH based on the number, size, type, or position of fibroids? So what do they find? In this cohort, with an average age of 29 years and a median AMH of 4.07, again, a young, healthy cohort here, 22% had at least one fibroid on ultrasound at the time of enrollment. And of these 22%, a third had more than one fibroid. The majority of fibroids are intramural, but the mean size of them was small at two centimeters. Again, these were all asymptomatic women at study enrollment without a known history of fibroids. With regard to the primary outcome, in a nicely adjusted multivariable model, which it took account age, BMI, contraceptive use, the diagnosis of PCOS and thyroid disease, the presence of fibroids, yes, no, was not associated with lower AMH concentration compared to women without fibroids. And similarly, there were no clear associations between uterine volume size, fibroid size, number, type, or position of fibroids with AMH concentration. I think this analysis in the study provides some reassurance that fibroids in younger African-American women do not have a strong influence on AMH, I think it also highlights the methodolic challenges that impact fibroid research. For those who aren't familiar with SELF, SELF is a really, really strong epidemiologic study. It's really well positioned to study the natural history of fibroids and their sequelae. By nature of recruiting young African-American women, those who we know will ultimately have the largest burden of fibroid-related morbidity in their lifetime, and capturing them without a diagnosis of fibroids, or at least without symptomatic fibroids, we're really well positioned to collect longitudinal information. The serial ultrasounds that these women then underwent 
allowed to capture a lot of asymptomatic women who, one, had newly diagnosed fibroids in their early reproductive years, but we have to be really careful to not extrapolate these results to women who either have symptomatic fibroids or those that are beyond the age of 35. It's possible that the fibroids that were encountered may not have been present long enough to influence AMH concentrations by nature of the inflammation or their mechanical distortion of the uterus and the remaining blood supply, or it may just be possible that they weren't long, long enough causing symptoms. In summary, I think this is a really great study that was really well designed from a cross-sectional cohort that's ongoing. And I think it provides really useful information for counseling this very specific subset of young African-American women who are asymptomatic and do not have known fibroids. And with that, you'll have the April edition of the Fertility and Sterility Journal packaged and ready for you to listen to. As always, the conversation continues beyond the podcast. You can follow us on our Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter pages for all your great FNS content. And stay tuned for upcoming FNS Unplugged episodes where the media editors of the sister journals discuss an article from FNS Reports, Science, and Reviews. As always, thanks for joining us, Eve, Kurt. Until next time. A lot of fun. I thank you for listening. And uh, whether you agree with us or don't agree with us, tell a friend and, uh, and share this podcast. Yeah, just a final plug. We're almost at 20,000 downloads, which we're really excited about. So keep on listening. Until next time. Bye-bye. This concludes our episode of Fertility and Sterility On Air, brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility family of journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect fertility and sterility or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine.